0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalden, and today we are going to talk to Catherine Carstairs and Heather McDougall about their respective contributions to a new edited book on the history of Medicare in Canada, in particular on the theme of what is missing from Canada's most vaunted social program and why historically this has been the case. Catherine Carstairs is a professor of history at the University of Guelph and has written books on the history of illicit drug policy and public health campaigns in Canada. Heather McDougall is an associate professor of history at the University of Waterloo who has recently retired. She has published on the history of public health and Medicare in Canada including a book on the history of Toronto's Health Department. Both have made important contributions to a new volume entitled Medicare's Histories, Origins, Omissions, and Opportunities in Canada, edited by Essel Jones, James Hanley, and Della Gavris. This book was published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2022. Catherine and Heather, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you
2: very much. Thank you so much for having us.
0: While many chapter authors deal with the origins of Medicare, your chapters really deal with the omissions and limitations of Medicare. And I'm going to start with you, Catherine. Your chapter is on the unfinished business of adding prescription drugs and dental care to Medicare, and that has become a real issue now that the NDP and Liberals have entered into a supply and confidence agreement as of March 22nd this year. But of course, I know you wrote this chapter well before the agreement. So how did you come to decide to research and write on this very, very uh, contemporaneous subject?
2: Yes, it's turned out to be very contemporaneous. Um, I've been working on the history of dental care for a long time. I have a book on the history of oral health and social inequality coming out this spring, which talks about denticare including pharmacare was a bit of an accident in this chapter um, as part of putting together this book we had a workshop in Winnipeg in 2018 and we all went out to dinner as part of the workshop um, and I sat at dinner with Esselt and James two of the editors and they were worried that they didn't have anything about pharmacy in the in the book. Um, I agreed that it was it was a gap and I said oh <laughs> I'll Step in and do that. <laughs> um, I was uh, you know, just finishing a term as department chair and looking forward to a year's administrative leave and I thought, Oh, I can do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was very courageous of you. It's a that's a complete world onto itself, I would say. <laughs>
2: It really is a world unto itself. Um, um, but I thought it would make sense in terms of the work that I was doing on um, dental care to sort of understand why both pieces had been left out of out of Medicare. Um, in terms of it being extremely uh, contemporaneous right now, I think this chapter shows um, how bad historians are at predicting the future, or at least how bad this historian is at predicting the future. Um, When I wrote the chapter in early 2019, I thought it was much more likely that we would get pharmacare than denticare. Um, There was a lot of momentum for pharmacare in 2019, and certainly drugs have become an ever more vital aspect of our healthcare system. Um, Internationally, far more countries provide PharmaCare than they provide dental health services. Um, But as it turns out, in the Canadian context, a lot has changed since 2019 when I initially wrote this chapter. Um, The Supply and Confidence Agreement has provisions, of course, for both PharmaCare and Denticare. um, But Denticare is on a much faster timeline, it seems. Um, partly because the program that's being proposed is it's not really going to cost a great deal of money and is comparatively easier to implement than what is being envisioned for PharmaCare. So the challenges for PharmaCare, I would say, right now are are much greater than for for dental care. So it's kind of the opposite of what I thought two years ago was going to happen. <laughs>
0: Well, still, it's a very salient topic, and uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to readers. Heather, let me ask you a similar question. Um, the Canada Health Act, which is, after all, in a sense, the superstructure for Medicare in Canada, is clearly focused on the core dimensions of curative care with that sort of center of hospitals and doctors. Uh, And your chapter traces the history of health promotion and population health over the last half century, something clearly outside of Medicare. So tell us why you selected this topic for the book.
1: Well, Greg, first of all, I think I disagree with you that it is outside of Medicare. It may be outside of the legislation that created Medicare. But when I looked at the people who were the deputy ministers of the Dominion Council of Health um, in the, the 50s and 60s, the people who truly um, were um, the motive force um, for the creation of Medicare, they were all public health professionals. And I don't, honestly don't think that it ever crossed their minds that public health would be so severely downgraded and virtually eliminated Um, because of the 1960s love affair with medical technology, which has continued all the way through to the present um, and is now focused in genomics and personal, uh, you know, medicine. All of that, frankly, frustrates me because public health is, I think, the bedrock um, of any effective healthcare system. And if we hadn't realized that, surely to goodness, two and a half years of COVID pandemic ought to have demonstrated that to us. So um, the other reason for doing this, when I wrote my history of Toronto's health department, uh, George Moss, who was the, uh, one of the retired medical officers I interviewed, told me that in public health, It takes a minimum of 30 years, one full generation of people for an idea that's being introduced to actually become socially accepted and acted upon. He was talking about um, his experience in watching the transition um, from mass smoking to smoking being socially unacceptable. Um, And I think that My article was designed to demonstrate that the same kind of thinking about the social determinants of health, you plant the seed in the 1970s, but it takes until the 21st century for it to become fully embedded. Now, has it flowered? No. But that was part of the reason for writing the article.
0: Well, Catherine, let's go back to the origins of uh, Medicare And uh, inpatient inpatient drugs, then here we're talking about drugs that are administered in hospitals. That definitely was included in universal hospital coverage under the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act of 1957. Outpatient drugs, however, were not included. Uh, Why was this the case and why uh, weren't uh, outpatient drugs included later in Medicare?
2: Yeah, so I didn't really look precisely at the question of why there wasn't broader inclusion of drugs in 57. I sort of thought of it as, you know, hospital care was being covered and that those drugs were being delivered and hospital were, were covered. I, I haven't looked a lot at that particular um, discussion. But certainly the system was intended to be kind of gradualist. Um, we started with hospital care, then we added physician services in 1966. Um, and you know, as both you and uh, Malcolm Taylor have argued, the debate around Medicare in the mid-1960s really focused around the provision of physician services. And at the time, this made a lot of sense. Canadians spent three times as much money on physician services at the time than they did on drugs. And so drugs were a much smaller part of the healthcare system in 66 when um, the uh, Medical Care Act was passed. Today, of course, drugs have caught up in terms of spending, so it's sort of a different scenario we're facing today. Um, The Hall Commission, um, which uh, reported in um, 64, did recommend including both uh, PharmaCare and Denticare, um, but they did have some concerns about the cost of PharmaCare. Um, this, of course, was a time of rapid drug development. Um, a Brookings Institute study in 1960 showed that you know, 90% of the drugs that were prescribed in 1960 had been introduced in the previous 20 years. So you know, that shows you how much sort of progress had been made on the pharmaceutical front. Um, and 40% of the drugs prescribed had been introduced in the previous six years. Um, So it was a time of really rapid change, Um, the cost of drugs was also rising very quickly um, now, the pharmaceutical company said that that was because they were doing so much research and development, but of course, um, researchers were also aware that they were also highly profitable, the pharmaceutical companies, um, and they were spending lots of money on advertising and promotion. Doctors were complaining even then that it was hard for them to know if a new drug represented a real advance or whether it was similar to another uh, cheaper drug. Um, And experience in other countries, which the Hall Commission looked at, showed that the cost of including drugs in state-funded medical care could be really expensive. And so I think this was part of the reason why the decision was made to just focus on physician services in 1966.
0: Heather, uh, you say that during the past 50 years, the federal government focused on, and I'll Quote directly from your statement two apparently contradictory roles in healthcare policy making cost control on the one hand and new paradigms intended to embed disease prevention and population health on the other. Are these two roles truly contradictory?
1: Yes and no. The Trudeau government's desire to control costs was in part uh, because of the rampant inflation of the 1960s and then, of course, the um, OPEC oil crisis stagflation of the 70s. But I think beyond that, um, because Trudeau and Lalonde, his uh, principal secretary, were both advocates of uh, active living, um, they were concerned that people, the public, was not, in fact, engaging uh, in this. And so that was the impetus for what became uh, the Lalonde report. But what all this meant was that in all the negotiations uh, surrounding what becomes the established programs financing legislation, um, at various points, you, you see that cost control is going to affect the spending on hospitals and medical services. No one likes to think that they are going to have to sacrifice. And when you look at public health and prevention, uh, because it's not as visible when you cut there as it is when you cut beds in a hospital or limit enrollment in medical schools, the public tends not to pay a whole lot of attention to, to prevention. So from the, basically the 1960s to the present, we've had that constant federal provincial conflict over who pays um, what amount for healthcare, but because the definition of healthcare was so very limited in the legislation in 57 and 66, um, public health had to scramble consistently for any kind of significant funding. And it was never a high enough priority that even with the most wonderful paradigm, that you would be able to shift public support and um, federal financing in that direction at a level that would have actually brought paradigm program examples to fruition.
0: Catherine, uh, I'm going to return to you and ask you about Denicare now. And... uh... There was no federal action to make Denicare part of universal health coverage, a little bit like the story about outpatient drugs, but uh, provincial governments did implement various programs. Uh, Can you summarize some of the more important initiatives in Denicare in Canada during that period? And can you tell us why these initiatives Uh, ran out of steam by the late 1980s and 1990s why what happened
2: Yeah, I mean, I will say that the the Royal Commission on Health Services did recommend that a system of dental care be established, but they were very aware that there was a real shortage of dentists in the country in the mid-1960s. So they instead recommended a program of children's um, dental care and thought that eventually that might be able to be extended to adults. But of course, the 1966 Act included nothing about about dental care. So instead, a lot of the provinces introduced a variety of programs aimed at children in particular. There were also programs for people on social assistance. Some of those had actually been introduced before um, Medicare was was introduced. Um, In Alberta, there was a program that covered seniors Um, And as you know, Greg, um, because you've written about this as as well, um, the most innovative program for children was in in Saskatchewan, where they began training dental nurses, who were later called dental therapists, um, to treat children right in schools. Um, So these were professionals that were specifically trained to do children's dentistry, so focusing on the, the needs that children had, sort of cavity filling and things like that. Um, And the Saskatchewan program was really remarkable. It was much more successful at reaching patients um, than other provinces where they implemented um, children's dentistry through uh, paying for the visits at private dental offices. But the Saskatchewan program reached far more children than the provinces did that went with sort of a private model of of care. Um, It was also uh, saved money, (laughs) Um, but even so, um, partly because of opposition from dentists, um, it was uh, finished in, in 1987. Um, And this was part, as you alluded to, a larger cutback that's happening in terms of dental care programs at the provincial level that happens in provinces across the country in the 1980s and 1990s. And of course, this is a sort of period of austerity. Government debt is um, exploding. There's huge concern about deficits and you see spending being curtailed in all sorts of places and social programs. And uh, dental care was really one of the casualties of those those cutbacks. Um, But there were other factors as well that made spending money on dentistry less appealing. Um, By the early 1980s, children were getting far fewer cavities than they had um, a generation or two earlier. We don't know exactly why there was this remarkable decrease in in cavities um, by the 1980s. Um, Water fluoridation um, likely played a role here. Um, Perhaps even more important was fluoridated toothpaste. This is something that I talk about in my my book. Um, There may be other factors like the widespread use of childhood antibiotics. Um, and so you know, the need, the pressing need that children had for dental care in the 50s and 60s was already being reduced through public health measures to get to the kind of uh, work that, that Heather's focusing on here. Um, and then the other thing that was happening was that as employers no longer needed to provide uh, medical insurance to, its, to their employees, Um, more and more insurance companies began offering dental insurance packages and unions made that a major demand in negotiations in the 1970s. And so you see this huge rise in private dental insurance. Um, By the early 1980s, approximately a third of Canadians had had dental insurance. Today, of course, almost two-thirds of Canadians have private dental insurance. And this certainly made a public system seem less urgent. Um, Although, as I cover in more detail in my book, it left certain populations, especially the working poor, extremely vulnerable.
0: Heather, um, did the landmark Lalonde report of 1974... and the new system of block funding that was implemented in 1977 offer the opportunity to address disease prevention, health promotion, and population health as part of the Canada Health Act of 1984. Uh, and if it, if it did offer that opportunity, why did it not happen?
1: I think that, in fact, uh, it was meant to. Um, certainly, the, the intention was to um, shift uh, attention away from uh, simply doctors and hospitals with, with the EPF uh, in particular, and um, that particular uh, piece of legislation included additional funding for home care, um, ambulatory care, which they differentiated from Uh, home care. And there was a component of it that was designed to encourage provinces to think beyond the box uh, and to engage in preventive activities. But of course, what happens is that literally EPF goes into effect on the 1st of April um, and Lalonde quits as the, excuse me, moves to another portfolio from being minister of health in September. Uh, And Monique Bejean is literally dropped in uh, with no real background orientation. Um, And that's, that. 77. She takes on um, childcare as her, her great interest. And this is the point at which the provinces really start turning a blind eye to extra billing and, um, the hospital daily charges. So, the um, and also, of course, we're talking about wage and price controls from 1975 to 78. The doctors are up in arms. Um, no one is particularly happy. And on top of all of this, um, the the Trudeau government imposes major budget cuts. So any hope that that anyone was going to any province was going to experiment with um, health promotion at this stage is pretty limited because they're all struggling to keep their healthcare systems afloat um, there's a wonderful cartoon of bill davis and there's an escalator and it's going up but it's not moving he's standing at the bottom and um the, the patient a uh, couple standing on it are looking at him like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, he's not getting the money from the feds, so he's not passing it on. And I thought that that really, you know, nicely represented for most provincial premiers how they felt about what EPF was doing in spite of the uh, tax points. And then, of course, um, the Conservatives' When a minority government, um, Joe Clark takes over, um, David Crombie becomes the Minister of Health, we have the second Hall report, and basically, there's no mention of prevention in that at all. The Liberals win the 1980 election, Monique Béjean takes over again, and almost immediately there's a recession on top of the Quebec referendum, the national energy policy, and patriating the constitution. Health is nowhere in the political agenda, really. Um, But it's very important to the public. It's very important to Beijing. And she has all these hostile premiers that she has to deal with. Um, Fortunately, she also has the Canadian Labour Movement and SOS Medicare. So what she and her senior staff do is come up with the Canada... Health Act, she says in her her autobiography that she would very much have liked to have moved to health promotion and prevention, but given that this legislation was about to take money away from the provinces, it didn't seem like the ideal moment to encourage them to move away from the curative system and into a new approach that the public hadn't fully become aware of or adapted to, given that they were at this point very much viewing uh, Medicare as the national icon, the great source of Canadian identity.
0: But jumping over that to uh, about just over a decade later to the Mulroney government and the EPP report, and then the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion, 1986. Did this alter the trajectory uh, of thinking, at least, by the federal and provincial governments in Canada?
1: In, in many respects, I think it did. Um, the other factor that I, I should have pointed out in the preceding uh, response was that the Lalonde report got worldwide acceptance, um, and but not universal praise. And the people who were um, most critical of it were actually within the public health community. These were the co- community activists, people like Ron Labonte, um, who uh, was with the City of Toronto Health Department and, and now teaches at the University of Ottawa. And he and the community at- organizers and activists really felt that the emphasis on personal responsibility in the Lalonde report was victim blaming. So the EP report, um, the new framework, basically said, they're right. It's, the, it's a community effort that we're going to need. And then, of course, the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion is definitely a response to the alma Ata Declaration of 1978, and the whole idea of health for all by the uh, year 2000. Um, very, very aspirational, very international uh, in orientation. Um, and alas, no one has, uh, no country has actually lived up to it uh, yet. But the EPP um, approach gave community organizations and non-governmental organizations like the Canadian Public Health Association, I think a new lease on life and um, basically then became very much part of the Canadian tradition where within provinces there are nodes of progressive behavior, Guelph, uh, where Catherine teaches being one of them. Um, And um, so what you get um, are all these small, um, successful, Uh, prevention programs, which work where they work because they grew usually from the community itself. Whether they can be moved to other parts of the country with different issues, different problems and approaches is the challenge. And when I reread the the, um, EP report, it has all these wonderful categories, but they are Bureaucrats speak, not people.
0: Catherine, uh, I'm going to return to you now and ask you why uh, from the 1990s until the recent past was uh, there such a resurgence in terms of pharmacare and the idea of adding pharmaceuticals to universal health coverage and very little discussion of denticare. Uh, over that period. You've alluded to it already in terms of cost factors earlier on, etc. But were there other factors in play here as well?
2: I think there are a few things at work and 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 one thing I would say in answering this question is there's such a need for more work on this topic and especially I think from a sort of a patient centered perspective so there are any grad students out there listening to this uh, podcast I would definitely encourage them to work on um, some aspects of, of drug history but um Certainly in the mid-1980s, the cost of drugs began exploding, partly because there were new techniques that allowed for the development of a new generation of pharmaceutical products. Um, So statins, for example, were introduced in the late 1980s. Um, Prozac came on the market in 1987. And so drugs were becoming an increasingly important part of the overall healthcare system. Um, And this is especially true because even, you know, by the 1990s, we're realizing that we're in the midst of an aging population and the older people get, the more they tend to take pharmaceutical drugs. Um, And it was clear that Canadians were paying more for drugs than people were in other countries. Um, And then... um, as profits from sort of the blockbuster drugs such as statins began to decline, pharmaceutical companies began moving into producing orphan drugs. Um, and these were drugs to treat very rare conditions. Um, so they could be life-saving or, you know, tremendously reduced disability. Um, but because they only served a very small number of patients, the cost of the, these drugs could be absolutely stratospheric. Um, So, for example, a few years ago, an article published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal um, talked about uh, Spinraza, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, It's a drug that treats spinal muscular atrophy in children. And at that point, it hadn't yet been approved by Health Canada, it has now been approved. It was predicted to cost at least half a million dollars a year. Um, And this is obviously far beyond the means of most Canadian families. And so you saw a lot of attention into the media about these kinds of stories and people who, you know, for whom there were drugs available that could help with their conditions, but they simply couldn't um, get access to them. Um, And even, you know, other drugs that are not as, you know, sort of crazily expensive. Um, are sometimes beyond the means of Canadians, and we were seeing more and more attention to this in the the media. Um, Danielle Martin's book, for example, draws attention to the the need of her patients for pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, recent research has shown that one in ten Canadians have not filled a prescription because they could not afford the cost of the drug, and yet, you know, nearly all of us. Use prescription drugs. Um, another recent survey found that over half of all adults between the ages of eighteen and seventy-nine used a prescription drug in the past month, um, and of course, you know, fifty-two percent of Canadians between the ages of sixty and seventy-nine um, had taken three different prescription drugs in the past month. So, you know, they're becoming an Im- increasingly important part of maintaining our our health, and so there is growing recognition that the patchwork of programs that currently exists um, is not enough to properly provide Canadians with the drugs they need. Um, and also, people were aware that, a bulk pur- that the bulk purchasing that could happen with a national pharmacare program could help reduce the price of, go- of drugs. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Canadians pay more for their drugs than do people in other countries that have pharmacare programs. Um, And in Canada, there were a couple of really important studies that helped to draw attention um, to this particular issue. So there was a study by Marc-André Gagnon and another one by Stephen Morgan and colleagues that showed that introducing pharmacare could reduce overall costs. Um, although it would change who was paying those costs um, while also greatly improving access and and I noticed um, you know Steve Morgan has a, a new letter out today promoting uh, pharmacare this is may uh, May uh, uh, 3rd and both both Greg and I are signatories on that that letter um, So in 2018, um, the Liberal government created an advisory council on the national implementation of Pharmacare um, and it was headed by Eric Hoskins, um, the former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister who had lobbied hard for Pharmacare while he was in office. Um, and his report, not surprisingly, came out very strongly in favor of pharmacare. Um, in the twenty nineteen election, the Liberals promised a significant down payment towards pharmacare. So it really felt like all of the momentum was in the pharmacare direction. But as I started with at the beginning of at the beginning of this podcast, it seems like the situation has reversed itself a little bit right now.
0: Although it seems that with the recent agreement, obviously, uh, between the federal liberals and the uh, New Democratic Party, uh, what may be about to unfold is precisely uh, the filling in of Pharmacare and uh, Denicare into universal health coverage in some form.
2: Yeah, we may may get both and and I hope we do. Certainly. Um, I just, I think, you know, as as Heather's been talking about, I mean, COVID-19 has changed so much um, in terms of how we think about about healthcare and we think about government spending generally. And I I do worry that pharmacare is going to be pushed off the table, but I very much hope I'm wrong about that. (laughs)
0: Right, right. Again, it's often a question of of money. Heather, I have one final question for you. Um, To what extent uh, will health promotion and population health become more of a priority for Canadian governments compared to the past, in part because of our experience with the COVID pandemic? Do you think that this has been a game changer in terms of government policy going forward?
1: Unfortunately, Greg, I don't. Um, My suspicion is that um, in spite of the very gallant work of all of the public health uh, chief medical officers across the country, Teresa Tam, Howard New, and all of the people at the public health agency, um, what they have done um, to keep us uh, safe, healthy, healthy, and vaccinated is um, fading quickly, I think, in public memory and estimation. Um, Catherine and I were part of a team that that did a report for the Royal Society, and we, as a result of it, had an interview with Teresa Tam and her senior staff, and she told us that she thought that there would be a two- to three-year window of opportunity for the public health agency to get the kind of sustained funding to buy the equipment, uh, the protective equipment, etc., that we need to be prepared for the next pandemic, because there will be one, um, before public and political attention turned elsewhere. Um, that was last summer, uh, was it Catherine, in the fall? Um, and subsequent to that, of course, David Naylor, and various other members of the medical community have been writing opinion pieces for national newspapers and the Canadian Medical Association Journal, pounding um, the federal government for its lack of funding to deal with the backlogs in surgery and cancer care and all of the things that were put on hold, while our relatively small healthcare care workforce turned its attention to dealing with the pandemic and of course what nobody seems to be paying attention to is it's not over Um, yes we've all been immunized or most of us but um, the virus is still circulating so PHACS job your local public health unit the provinces they're not they're not finished yet but everybody is rushing back to normal, and I think that they're just not thinking. Human beings seem to have a marked inability to learn from experience. And for public health people, I think this is one of the, the biggest frustrations that they experience throughout their entire careers.
0: Well, Heather, I hope you're wrong.
1: I hope so too, Greg. I but, really do. But,
0: but it does demonstrate that history never really does end. We are always living in it. and uh, But it, the experience of the SARS crisis certainly indicates that as well, that uh, we tend to want to get away from these crises and the lessons that they bring as quickly as possible. But uh, Catherine and Heather, I want to thank you for your contributions to this wonderful book and for joining us today.
1: You're more than welcome.
2: Greg, thanks so much for having us. And thanks to the editors of this volume for putting it together as well.
0: My guests today were Catherine Carstairs and Heather McDougal. They are contributors to the book entitled Medicare's Histories, Origins, Omissions, and Opportunities in Canada, edited by Esselt Jones, James Hanley, and Della Gavris. The book was published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on May third, twenty 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.